Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Defending the Faith, today, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, with a message from Dr. Newfeld entitled, Christians and Homosexuality. Since I'm doing a three-week series on apologetics or, or how to defend our faith to all who ask, I think it an incomplete series if we don't answer the questions that many people are asking. You know, it's not that the Christian faith mandates faithfulness within heterosexual marriage for life. That's not what bothers most people. It's that there has been in the past what some would regard as intolerant attitudes towards homosexuality. And I'm not surprising anyone when I say the Christian response to homosexuality is a hot button. As attitudes in our culture toward homosexuality have changed radically, Christians are finding themselves portrayed as homophobic and heterosexist. In some ways, these labels are intended to intimidate and to stop genuine dialogue. These labels are intended to portray those who disagree with homosexuality as being both irrationally fearful of homosexuals, which is homophobic, and bigoted as well, heterosexist. In short, is this the most difficult of all questions we've asked? The others that I've discussed can be discussed in a more peaceful, irrenic way, but this one comes charged with passion. And the reason for this is that many now believe that homosexual orientation is not a matter of choice, but one of biological and genetic factors. And so, if this is what people are according to their makeup, something they can't change, well, then objecting to homosexuality will seem like objecting to people on the basis of race. It is, as some see it, bigotry. You know, in the past, Christians have fought to end poverty and racism, infanticide, abortion, slavery, the degradation of women, and other matters of social justice. We want the oppressed protected. It seems strange for us to be portrayed on the side of bigotry. So how do we answer? And how are we to think about homosexuality? It's also difficult speaking about this subject because how you speak about it will vary depending upon who you're speaking to. You know, if I'm speaking to, you know, spirit-led, Bible-taught Christians, the question is, how can we engage the culture in a way that's winsome, wins people to Christ? If I'm speaking to someone who's, who's struggling with same-sex attraction but wants to be faithful to Christ, the question is, am I still a Christian and, and how should I understand my struggle? If I'm speaking to, to someone who has been rejected by Christians because of this, the question is, well, it's just it's going to be another person who wants to beat me up again. And if I'm speaking to someone who's convinced of the new narrative that homosexuality is good and right, well, the question is, will you hear what the scriptures actually teach? So each person deserves a different response. And given the differing people who listen back to the Bible, I've asked myself, how do I speak meaningfully to this? I can't possibly address all questions, and to some that might seem frustrating. But we are asking, is the Christian faith, and by that I mean the historic faith, what Jude 3 calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that faith described in the Bible, is it hateful to homosexuals? Let's begin with the beginning. In a short period of time, let's review what the Bible actually says about sex. First, it's a gift of God. Let's begin by agreeing that sex is God's creation. It was his idea and he designed our bodies to function in this fashion. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then later, Genesis 2.24 adds, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the implication is clear. God purposefully designed human beings to be male and female for the purpose of lifelong intimacy, expressed in the sexual act, resulting in the future of the race. In other words, God so designed that the next generation would come into being through the lifelong love and commitment of a man and a woman. And so from the very outset, sex isn't dirty or naughty. God actually wants married couples to enjoy a lifetime of sexual activity and activity that he blesses. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. But that brings me back to the next matter. Second, sex, like everything else, is subject to the fall. When we say that human beings are fallen, we mean that first, we were created in the image of God, but that we as a human race have fallen, we've fallen into sin. Sin has not wiped out the image of God, but sin has distorted it. This means that every part of our humanity has been distorted by sin, that is, our intellect, our emotions, our volition, our relational capacity, our ability to worship, and our sexuality. In a sinful world, nothing works the way it should. Everything is broken. That which is designed as good is now bent. And that's true of our sexuality. Our sexuality now becomes depraved, and not one way, but in hundreds of ways. I'm going to come back to that. Point number three is that sex is easily dominated and directed by the flesh. The biblical doctrine of flesh is very interesting, and and we can't discuss it fully, but for our purposes, let me point out several things. First of all, consider Romans 7, 14, and 15. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know, in short, the doctrine of the flesh states that whereas we may choose to sin at one point in time, but but after we choose, the power of choice is often wrested from our hands. Deeply ingrained habitual patterns easily overwhelm our power of choice, dominate us, and leave us helpless against its power. Talk to the person who tells themselves, no more pornography, or no more flirting with my office colleague, or no more sex with my boyfriend, and, and after the most sincere and devoted, determined repentance, the flesh merely waits for its time and with an appropriate moment easily overwhelms and defeats a man or a woman. Romans 7.20 says, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So the power of indwelling sin is so strong that it has a life of its own. The Bible calls this slavery to sin. It's, It's like a strong and cruel slave master who owns the rights to our lives. Okay, with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So clearly, God considers sexual sin to be a very serious matter. Now, that's the groundwork of Christian thinking about sex and the nature of our brokenness. Let's move from that to talk about what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. Let's begin by saying something that that may surprise a great many people who are not familiar with the Christian faith. Homosexuality is but one in a long list of sins. 
Furthermore, you might be even more surprised to hear that homosexuality is not a dominant biblical theme. Yeah, it's mentioned as a sin, but the matter does not predominate the Bible. If I were to rate those sins that are most frequently addressed in the Bible, we'd have to start with idolatry. That is, our capacity to worship has become so distorted that we worship created things rather than an obedient and joyful adoration of the one true living God. Failure to worship God as we should is the most serious of all of our sins. Now, the reason I mention this is because we're talking about the issue of tolerance, and yet, I don't think I've ever heard a charge of intolerance because of this doctrine. See, we live in a culture where people don't worship at all. We live next door to these people. We, we go to school with them. We work with them as colleagues. We, we have people like that in our families, and yet we deeply love these people. We profoundly disagree with them. I think we should explain this to non-Christians. We're not highlighting homosexuality in our churches as the apex of all sinning. We've highlighted a failure to love God and to find our moment-by-moment pleasure in Him as the apex of all sinning. See, I have some experience of this while I've been in pastoral ministry. At one point in time, the news media portrayed my church as homophobic because of an activity that we'd not even been involved in. It was misreported news, but, but nonetheless, we became embroiled in a, in a tempest in a teapot. I remember that one secular man came to our church to check things out, and he was shocked that the issue of homosexuality didn't come up in my sermon that day. Now, I had to assume that he thought it must be a constant subject of conversation when I preached, and he was surprised. But I was also very surprised. You know, it had not occurred to me that there were those out there who thought that we as believers majored on this theme. Somehow the news didn't get out, and here's what I think we need to do. We need to say, look, this whole issue is not our issue. It seems to be yours. But since it is your issue, let me answer gently. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate. I've said that in the Bible, homosexuality is but one in a long list of sins and that it doesn't take prominence in the Bible, even among the Bible's condemnations of sexual sins. I mean, consider the kinds of sexual acts the Bible calls sin. 
first and foremost on that list, found as the seventh of the Ten Commandments, is the sin of adultery. And if someone were to say, well, in the Old Testament, there was a death penalty for homosexuality, I would answer yes, but there was also one for adultery. And one of the things I'd like to say is that homosexuality didn't even make it to God's top 10 list, the Ten Commandments, but adultery did. And so does having a secret desire for your neighbor's wife. Furthermore, Leviticus 18 verse 22 says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And yes, the Bible does consider homosexuality to be an abomination. But notice also that in Leviticus 18, sexual relations are also forbidden with your stepmother, your mother-in-law, your uncle, your aunt, your sister, your daughter-in-law. Each of these things are also condemned as abominations. And what's more, in the New Testament, instead of treating homosexuality as one standalone issue, it's only included in the lists of other sins. Consider Romans chapter 1. Here, Paul says that the wrath of God is coming upon the whole human race. And why is that? Well, listen to his answer. He says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in other words, it begins with failure to worship God. And what follows then, says Paul, is idolatry. And then, and then only, does Paul mention homosexuality. Romans 1, 26 to 27 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then follows a list of other sins, including envy and murder and strife and slander, and on and on it goes. Or consider 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So do you notice the pattern? Never mentioned alone, never singled out, as the horror among horrors, but one example of how sin has broken everything that's in the image of God. And that's why when we come to the text we've chosen, notice how it runs. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, did you notice the last sentence? Paul is simply saying that all these things make up the human race and is from all of these things that we are saved. That's the point. Two things are very important here. First, we never single out homosexuality as something worse than other sins. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you're no better and you're no worse than anyone committing homosexuality. Are there Christian people who have come out of homosexual lifestyles? Well, yes, they are. Are they worse than people who have struggled with, with other forms of sexual sin? No, they're not. They make up the list of sexual sins that are all part of our brokenness, our fallenness, the twisting of the image of God in us. Second, Christ can heal every sin. 
even while sin has the power of the flesh and can enslave into patterns that seem to overwhelm the will. And even while the power of desire, in this case, same-sex attraction and desire, can seem so overwhelming that you think it unbeatable, there's a little secret that you should be aware of. We can, through the help of the Holy Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. The power of sin over time can be progressively brought under the Lordship of Jesus. Let me put it directly. Any person with same-sex attraction should, first of all, realize that all of this is a part of our fallenness. Your sexuality is broken, as is the sexuality of, of everyone else around you. The first step of change is to admit it that it's a sin. And secondly, you can, through the help of the Holy Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. So much more can be said, but, but I need to move on. Let me answer a few questions about homosexuality. First, what causes it? I know you might say, well, the fall does it, and of course that's true. But that's like asking what causes cancer and by saying, well, the fall does. You know, with all of our brokenness, there are mechanisms whereby things become broken. So what is the mechanism that causes homosexuality? There are two honest answers, at least I think, to this question, and a lot of dishonest answers. The first honest answer is that we don't know. The second honest answer is that, that there are a number of factors that all seem to work together. Everything from the possibility of genetic predisposition to, to an early broken relationship with one's father, to peer experiences, including deep rejection, to early sexual experience that includes abuse, to an effeminate temperament, to cultural reaction, to a series of complex issues that, that one might not altogether understand, to societal pressure. The point is that there's unlikely to be just one smoking gun. That is, up to this point, no genetic marker has been found to indicate homosexuality. But this is the key. Our biology is not determinism. For instance, it is known that among males, there is such a thing as males with an additional Y chromosome. They were once thought to be overrepresented in prison populations. But, but that's not to say that XYY men are necessarily aggressive. And it turns out they're not. Human behavior is far more complex than mere biological factors. And so the point is simple. I think that Christians simply don't agree with the 21st century homosexual narrative that labels someone homosexual as a result of biology. We do acknowledge that a certain percentage of our population will have same-sex attraction. And this will vary in strength and it will vary in length. Some will go through a period, especially in adolescence, in which they're trying to sort themselves out sexually. It may also vary in terms of whether same-sex desire is for more than one person. That is to say, there are some who have a same-sex desire for only one person and not for others. We also know that some people will have a, a same-sex orientation that never seems to go away. What I think that Christians disagree with is that this means that you have to accept the label of gay and lesbian. Look, a lot of Christians struggle with, with lust for forbidden relationships with the opposite sex. But God says it's forbidden. And in the midst of this struggle, we must teach people not to identify themselves as lusters. Rather, we teach them to say, I know that my sexuality is broken. Whereas God created the human race for wholeness, I'm fallen. But I know that through the grace of God, I am not what I once was. And furthermore, because of the promise of God, everything that is now bent and twisted will eventually be fixed when I'm glorified and stand before my heavenly Father. In the meantime, by the Spirit of God, 
I'm learning to put to death the misdeeds of the body. No, no, I'm not a luster. I'm a born-again believer, born into a living hope. And that's what we also teach Christians with same-sex attractions. I would encourage you to say, if that's you, I may be tempted by same-sex desire, but I know that through the grace of God, I am not what I once was. And one last issue. Does that mean that whereas heterosexual lust can be satisfied in marriage, homosexual lust can't be satisfied there? Listen, am I telling anyone a secret when I say that lust for illicit sex does not end with marriage? Instead, marriage is intended to teach you to redirect your desires. The same can be said of someone who who struggles with same-sex attraction. You can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, learn to fix your mind on that which is godly. Even if you struggle with it for a lifetime, your struggle will be filled with an undying hope. For he who elected you to be his own will one day perfect you. You're not defeated. You're on the way to a victory with a shout of triumph, so don't you ever stop fighting. And so, Christians, I think, are not homophobic. We are, are you ready for this? We are sinophobic. We know that sin has so many manifestations, and each one militates against the life of God. And we don't condemn those who are trapped in sin. Rather, we call out that if anyone is thirsty, come to the water and drink. If anyone needs to be healed, come to the one who can heal you. Christ is the answer to what you're looking for. Abandoning yourself in lust is not. Thanks for your message today, John. And you know, within the church and outside of the church, it seems like homosexuality is being brought to the forefront. But really, when we look at the Word of God, it's way down the list when, when we discuss things that are of sexuality within the Bible. Yeah, and that's surprising to a lot of people. Some people on one side will want to say, yeah, but if you don't stress this a lot because of the hour in which we live in, well, you know, then people are going to get the idea that you're okay with homosexuality. And the answer is, no, we're not. It's, it's a sin, and it's listed as a sin in the Bible. And yet, we are warned so often about adultery uh, that it's surprising to me that we don't list that as one of the most serious things that we engage in. And then fornication and all those other things, um, you know, so it's all a part of our, our sexual brokenness that I talked about. And so I think it's important for Christians to, to get the narrative back. And our narrative is that God demands of us a sexual purity and cleanness. That's, that's the issue. Thanks so much, John. And we'll be continuing our series and concluding it tomorrow. So join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. What happens when someone is converted? Is it possible to keep sinning after being genuinely saved? These are all questions you may have found yourself asking at some point in your spiritual journey. To that end, Dr. John Neufeld has an audio series called Your Salvation Story, where he unpacks these difficult questions in detail and provides valuable insights that offer clarity and helps you to see the wonder of your redemption like never before. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering you this five-message CD series for free accompanied by a special reflection guide crafted to help you get the very most out of this Bible teaching series. To request your CD series and guide, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate. The Reflection Guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use.